Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon. So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications. I'm an ex-Googler and now help launch new companies and products. And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a datafile or a dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go. Hey, good morning, Brian. Hey, how's it going? A lot has changed since the last podcast. That is for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's been a little while since we've had a podcast between travel and... Well, mostly because of travel. We just haven't been in the same place uh, to record one. But uh, we are in the same place a lot these days uh, because of everything that has, of course, happened with COVID-19. I feel like we're stuck in, in an episode of The Little House on the Prairie. Like every day I get up. It's like Groundhog Day. Well, it, it is really different since we're so on the go and we actually really lack that routine in our lives. I mean... Man, I, I baked bread yesterday. Like, That's you know, awesome. It, it is awesome. I love it. But that just hasn't happened in a really long time. <laughs> so. Nice. Back to basics. Yeah. I'm making paper mache with all the toilet paper <laughs> I stocked up. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Watch what you say. You're going to get hate mail. I know. I already that. get hate mail. It's fine. I'll just <laughs> add it in the stack. Be so. like, oh, he's a TP hoarder. Yeah. Go I get mean, him. Now when people send me hate mail, I'm keeping it and I'm putting it next to the bathroom just in case. Well, so. I mean, it's only appropriate. Yeah, I don't want to waste. Yeah, exactly. So just being prudent. Keep your paper, paper, you know, paper hate mail coming. <laughs> I'm going to save it and use it wisely <laughs> in the future. So anyhow, we didn't uh, we didn't get on this one today to to talk all about uh, uh, disaster prep and and virus and all that stuff and but. reducing and reusing. Your hate mail. Yeah, exactly. That was our last podcast, Trash. Now, it's all coming back to me now, slowly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So where do we, what do we want to talk about today? I, I really want to, the news has beat, beat, beat the drum on everything, virus and how it's growing and all of these things and hand sanitizer and mm-hmm. ventilators and, you know, if we made a, a sound cloud or a, you know, whatever out of this, uh, that would be all of those talk tracks. Let's today talk about sort of the data, the technology, and really what's changed from a business perspective, because that to me is much more interesting. Does that work? Yeah, I mean, I, and I mean, granted, it's all it's all interesting and super relevant, but let's face it, we're not uh, we're not doctors. We're not going to pretend we're the CDC. So we'll let we'll let those people talk about that stuff. We know what we're seeing in business and and tech. So, and things are changing so fast too. I mean, uh, sure, we can talk. The numbers we can certainly talk about from a trend perspective, but man, the, I mean, of course, the numbers are just changing um, constantly. So it's, well, it's would, a well time. I would say for our organization and the ones that we're part of, uh, because we've been on the go for 50, I mean, I've, I've been a remote employee for over 15 years. Uh, I know that you Me have too. as well. So you know, for us, that's not like a huge change. This is, this is status quo. So yeah. I think our, we, we haven't had to adapt to quite as much. Uh, and it was really, really quick for us to switch gears and get out of the office. I, yeah. That's something I'm, I'm super thankful for right now because I know certainly the, the companies that I'm talking with that are seeing major disruption. I mean, it is because they aren't ready to have remote teams and they don't know how to do it. And now, of course, they're doing it um, in crunch time when there's not only figuring out how to run your business remotely, but your employees are also dealing with the social strain of this, having to homeschool their kids. And there are a million other distractions and demands all the while you're trying to transition to a remote workforce. So, I mean, yeah, talk about a challenging situation. Um, I'm super thankful we're, we're not there because, to your point, uh, we've been able to well, work remotely for a long time ourselves. We know how to do it as individuals. And then we've known how to set up our team. So, so they're comfortable doing that as well. So we haven't really missed a beat in terms of our own productivity. 
Yeah, and I will say this. I think one of the things that we could all use in this time is levity. And one of the things that I will say, I know we've got uh, over 10,000 listeners at this point, and I know some of them are probably uh, on calls with us. If your kid walks through the background, you know, beating a drum or a Fisher-Price xylophone or whatever, your dog is barking and whatever... I think it's all like endearing. It's and, just part of it. Well, and honestly, the, and yeah, like you say, in, in the way things are right now, please let it happen. Like in the, in the days when, you know, I remember being one of the only people, I shouldn't say one, well, there were very few of us. I could probably count them on one hand at this huge media holding company that I worked at. And it was just like, you know, blasphemous if you ever let on that you were someplace other than a very sanitary office environment because there were so few of us. But now, yeah, we're all in this together. Like we get it. So yeah, it's just like, you know, let let that be one less point of stress in your day. You know, if your dog wants to come sit on your lap, let your dog say hi to everybody. It's cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, we've played the game of, uh, of hiding where we were for a very long time. So <laughs> Um, so yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the tech. I mean, luckily we already had the tech built in. We had our office ready to move, uh, everybody on a laptop, everybody on devices and connected in such a way that uh, they could do anything that they needed to from either a coffee shop, the office or wherever. I will say though, there's one thing that I miss every time I'm not at an office. What? A really good printer. Oh, and you don't print that often. That's interesting. I don't, but when I do, I want it to be solid. You know, I want I want like really crisp stuff. So, so just the classic wanting what you can't have. You're at home and you're like, I never would have thought to print this, but now I really want to print this. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, should I should I like zip into my biohazard suit and head to the office and like just grab the <laughs> printer? Or like, what should I do? <laughs> the printer might have to migrate yeah. to our, our house. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, so, so tell me, tell me more about this. So you're, you're the, you're CTO, right? So you're handling all of, all of the preparedness stuff before, before we were dealing with this whole situation. So what are, what are the main things that you're looking back now? And you're just are telling yourself like, wow, I'm really glad I did X, Y, and Z because this just makes life so much easier with what we're dealing with right now. Well, I would say, I'm going to back up from that a little bit because I had an unfair advantage. We started this company two years ago and all of the technology that you needed to be fully remote was fully available two years ago. There's a ton of companies that started before all the technology was available. Yeah. So So we weren't dealing with legacy challenges. Exactly. Exactly. So we ended up being able to sort of re-script, right? And so I always ask customers and clients this. If you could go back and just wave a wand and tomorrow you came in and your infrastructure was completely different, what would you do differently? You know, and this is something when I was at VMware, we would ask clients that all the time. Um, I know Amazon, AWS, they ask people that because they're trying to get people to move from physical, you know, uh, on-premises data centers to their data center. and so they're trying to get people to envision like, hey, if you had to do it all over, boy, the cost would be a lot cheaper if you just like put it in the cloud. Um, the reality is that might not always be the case. Um, I have some some strong mathematical opinions on whether the cloud always makes sense. But, you know, that's uh, that's for a different episode. Okay. Um, but with that being said, we built up and chose applications that I didn't have to install you know, in, in our data center at the office. Um, you know, many of them I can have hybrid. So some of it is at the office, some of it is remote, but for the most part, you can get to everything from the cloud. So, you know, step one, step two, we deployed things like antivirus, things like, um, intrusion detection, which, uh, you know, make sure that you're safe and secure and sound, we deployed that really at the network layer. No one knows about that. Um, you know, for the most part, they've got a, a client on their computer that they can securely uh, connect to our network, but that also has antivirus. It also has a number of other things. It's just in the background. So there's none of this, oh, hey, am I supposed to update Semantic today, help desk calls? So that stuff 
is really non-existent. Um, the other piece, almost all of our files are able to be accessed through the cloud or you know through a through a web browser. Makes it super simple, no matter where you're at. So those number of you know those number of items really really easy we also have vpn technology which is in my opinion you know that was kind of the forerunner in a lot of remote access technology and um, i want to i want to step in and be acronym please okay cool vpn virtual private network thank you so basically super high level uh allows you to make a tunnel so like if you are in a coffee shop and your computer attaches to the um, my favorite coffee shop Wi-Fi, which may or may not be secure, um, that connects you to the public internet through their ISP, their internet service provider. Um, what a VPN does is a VPN goes out over that link, finds wherever your office is, whatever ISP your office is using, um, makes a secure connection through that link so that there is essentially a tunnel through those two connections. So from the computer in the coffee shop all the way through to the firewall at the office or the data center or wherever. Um, that's a, that's a technique that, you know, 15 years ago, that was sort of really one of the only ways there, there were some other ways uh, to do it, but that was one of the more popular if you were working at a big corp, you know, big Fortune 500. Um, but there are some risks with that because now that computer basically becomes an extension of your data center, extension of your network. So essentially that coffee shop laptop, uh, if it is not secure, if it is not um, locked down so that people can load whatever the heck they want for applications on it, et cetera, that becomes a potential ticking time bomb to, you know, get inside your network and do bad things. So, um, so that's a VPN, right? Um, it, it works. Um, we don't extend that to all of our employees. We typically use that to get to some of our more technical or server, uh, type things that we run behind the scenes. Um, uh, but it just works. It's super and, easy. And, and you didn't, um, create the the need for all of our employees to have that because of everything else that's set up. Exactly. It's just unnecessary. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, and, and this also, you know, when you say back up a, a bit to two years ago that we're starting from a clean slate, obviously like absolutely critical to why we're at where we are with, with our team. And you actually started on this you know, different aspects of remote readiness very early in your career. I mean, back when you were at VMware, right? Yeah. That well, was like super cutting edge stuff of, of, you know, translating to what we, what we are able to do today with distributed teams. Yeah. Well, and what I would say there, it's really interesting. So, you know, VMware, great engineering company, great software company. Um, I loved being part of that. The moment that Diane Green got fired by EMC after we went public, uh, it really started to become much more of a sales and marketing company. They brought in Paul Moritz from, uh, from Microsoft. He was an engineer too, but I mean, he was definitely an EMC plant. Uh, and so, you know, some of the flavor of the company changed, but one of the things in that time frame that we were really starting to talk about was something called VDI and VDI is virtual desktop infrastructure. So that was sitting on top of the VMware platform. So VMware for people that may or may not know what this, what, what it was or what it is, um, basically takes all the hardware, you know, the server, even your computer, if you wanted it to, um, and it takes the hardware and it sort of abstracts the software layer. So the operating system doesn't really see the actual hardware. It sees virtual hardware that the VMware layer serves up, you know, to kind of really simplify it. Um, and so the reason or what that does is that lets you sort of encapsulate individual VMs or virtual machines on that laptop. So you could have four, five, 10 different desktops or, you know, operating systems loaded on that machine. Um, 
that really started out in the desktop space, believe it or not, where developers were using that so they could have Linux, they could have Windows running, they could have all these different instances running that they could switch between and either try code, try you know a new release, you know, do some dev test, all that stuff. That was fantastic. But then VMware started to say, hey, you know what? This would actually apply really nicely in the server space. So then we started getting into putting it on really beefy servers and collapsing uh, data centers into themselves. I would argue that that was the number one thing that started um, the revolution to the cloud as far as infrastructure is concerned for uh, for big enterprises. Um, and so to kind of fast forward and, and get to where we're going with this, they also, people started to look at it and say, well, hey, you know, if I could do that with servers, why couldn't I do that with a virtual desktop and take all of the stuff that you see, put it in the, you know, the data center and then just stream down the keyboard, the video and the mouse and basically a video feed that interacts with your keyboard, video and mouse on the desktop. And so that, you know, VDI was born. VMware didn't invent that. So a company called Citrix, um, there's a number of companies that that have done this for a long time. Um, a company called Citrix was doing that when I was in college. I mean, I think they've been out way before VMware was, had a tight partnership with Microsoft uh, and built basically that, right? They built it so that you took a server, you put versions of applications on there and then you shared that out and everybody got like a screen instance of that so like your desktop view would essentially be just that um, i worked for a really large defense contractor we used that and you would go in and you know click on that icon it would open up your desktop and it was all i couldn't change anything i couldn't add applications it was very regulated um worked great. Well, it sounds like you have the best of all worlds there. It's, it's flexible. Um, it's easy to deploy. It's secure. And it, it it just it works in a way that's really seamless like that. So I guess my question is, why aren't more companies doing it? Is it something that's still cost prohibitive for a lot of, a lot of organizations? Is it a legacy problem? It's just it's really difficult to transition to this type of, of uh, infrastructure. I mean, what's kind of what's the holdup? Well, that, and that's a great question. And so, like, we started with VPN, right? VPN is really down at the core of the network. That is a very, let's just make the office, let's just take the office network and sort of extend it. And then you still have that device that has to be secured and, and all of that. Um, the next layer up, let's call that VDI, virtual desktop infrastructure. That's essentially sharing out a desktop uh, on you know, whatever device, uh, that's great too. But now you still have to manage that desktop image, right? So you've got, let's just say Windows, right? You've got Windows on there. That has to get patched. That has to get updated. Now you have to have put Windows desktop applications on there and make sure those are all updated. There's still a lot of management with all of these updates and making sure that stuff is secure. So would that only make sense in an organization that's of a certain size or else the the time and, and effort that it takes to basically keep all that up to date with with imaging and patching and all that good stuff that really doesn't make sense for an organization less than X number of employees? I mean, is that really what we're talking about? If you've got less than 25 employees, that gets, that gets tough to cost out. And I'm yeah. sure we'd get people from Microsoft... Uh, Citrix, VMware, and Amazon all disagreeing with me. That's fine. They're trying to sell you something. Reality of it is, it you know it, it depends. That's the engineering answer. But there's there's some complexity in how you cost it out. So now let's sort of fast forward. So you know, ten years ago was the year of VDI. VMware started saying this is the year of VDI. This is the year that everyone is going to switch to using virtual desktop. Uh, it never really took off quite like that, you know? And I think um, for a number of reasons, there were some cost reasons. Microsoft also made licensing, which predominantly most businesses use uh, 
a Windows environment. Um, they made some of the the licensing either ambiguous or they put they do what Microsoft does. They put a ton of FUD out there and made people uh, wonder if they were in compliance. So it made it go a little slower than I think everybody was expecting. So it was like four and five years in a row I kept hearing, oh, this is the year of EDI. Nope, this is the year of EDI. Well, I'm here to report it's finally the year of VDI. It's also <laughs> really? yeah. Wow. It's also the year of web 2.0 applications. It's also the year of SaaS-based everything uh, to run a business. So where I'm going with that is VDI is great. That's kind of an intermediary step, um, sort of like the cloud. Um, to be able to get to a virtual desktop and be able to like take that away from the hardware and just make it work wherever so that you can click and see all the icons in your application and it just runs. Um, that was sort of a feat. But but by decoupling that, that also gives you a lot of abilities to now all of a sudden start putting some of that stuff on in the cloud, some of that stuff potentially as a different type of app. So I would say people are adopting that rapidly. I know uh, Francis, this guy that used to be on my team, um, I've seen some of his posts because he's been preaching uh, basically end-user computing uh, and virtualization of the desktop for a very long time. He implemented it at a really big company that he's at um, long ago. He is sitting back and I think uh, probably having a nice drink right now thinking, okay, I'm glad that my infrastructure was built a long time ago before the panic came. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, given the fact that a lot of organizations right now are just racing and rushing to catch up, I mean, where do you where do you start? This isn't something you stand up in a week. So what can you do to just start getting the house in order? You, well, so you definitely could stand this up in a week if if you had resources to do it. Um, but what I would say is, you know, I think a lot of folks. So the next the next progression, right, is the Web 2.0 apps. I'll come back to your question because that's a great question. Um, but Web 2.0 apps. So Web 2.0 apps are basically those desktop apps that you have to install on Windows or Mac or whatever, um, that's a traditional you know, desktop application uh, written specifically for that desktop, right? A web application, things like Salesforce, things like Microsoft Dynamics, things like HubSpot or uh, QuickBooks Online, all of these types of applications run in the web. And so when updates happen, those companies do the updates behind the scenes, your application keeps working. So you go to a web browser, it's secure, all of that infrastructure you don't worry about, you just pay a monthly or annual fee. So people that have been adopting that, and that's sort of their go-to, they're in a great spot because you can use that stuff for the most part from anywhere. So, you know, I think looking at things like that and seeing if it makes sense for your business. That's a great approach. There are definitely costs with that. Um, you know, and I know a lot of uh, bigger companies are able to internalize those costs and it makes sense for them to install that stuff on premises. But for a small business, getting to the point where you don't have a lot of those, those things and that you're focused on security, access, control, and you know, basically productivity is a very much better place than worrying about, hey, I need to order 14 new HP servers so that I can scale our critical business app, you know, with the two IT people that I have that are also, you know, running around making sure that spam isn't happening. And I mean, and two IT people, I think, is even generous for a lot of small businesses. <laughs> they, they maybe have oh, an yeah. IT person that pops in once in a while. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like a fractional. A lot of these really large banks, for instance, they have tons of servers. Um, they were getting to metrics of like 100 to 1. Um, so basically, one admin would sort of support about 100 
different machines um, or servers. Uh, that was kind of like the goal they were shooting for and pushing to. It's been a little bit, you know, since I've talked to uh, to some of them, um, and sometimes they're proprietary with uh, with those numbers, but I'm sure they're well better than that now with virtualization in the cloud. Meaning um, better, meaning that you can have one person service many more. Machines. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's more efficient. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So no, that's that's where it's at. I think if I was a small business today, a couple things. I'm thinking of the businesses that are probably most affected um, at the front of this disaster. Right. It's anybody in hospitality. It's anybody in food service. Um, you know, um, those are really probably the, the big places, obviously travel. I kind of throw that in hospitality, even though sometimes it's inhospitable. Um, but you know, those three industries really heavily affected, uh, what I would say is the businesses that already had some digital presence and already had a, a digital, um, you know, fingerprint in what they were doing much better off than companies that didn't. Um, obviously the travel industry, um, you know, they could be digital all they want. They still have a very physical product. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not helping them. I'm sure that much. Um, but now you get into the restaurant industry. If you were a restaurant that already accepted, for instance, Grubhub or DoorDash or any of the number of delivery services, and that is just in your day and you can easily you know, accept that, you already have a leg up on your competition now because you're not learning that this week. You're not trying to get signed up for that you know, in the midst of a crisis, right? So I think step one is sort of looking at your business and figuring out, you know, how close to the real problem are you? You know, if I was in, you know, the restaurant business and I didn't have something digital, I'd be, I'd be racing real fast if I wanted to, you know, continue doing business to get something up digital as quickly as possible so that you could take advantage of delivery or, you know, whatever is available. Absolutely. And even with restaurants now with like curbside pickup, um, you know, how easy is that? I mean, of course you can call up, I'm sure, and place your order, but uh, most restaurants, they don't have a menu that you can actually kind of click into place an order. So just simple things like that, even if you're not using a third party delivery service that just makes things more efficient and much clearer, that that would even be a huge improvement for a lot of these, these uh, restaurants. Well, and another piece to that, right, is you know, it's an antiquated industry for most part. A lot of deliveries are cash on delivery. So you've got a delivery person coming around saying, how many, how many units of fish do you want this week or whatever? He goes in the truck and pulls it out and gives an invoice and away you go. Sometimes that stuff's ordered in advance, um, but a lot of times it's not, right? And there's a lot of interaction there. I'm guessing, you know, Las Vegas, I'm sure, um, and a hotel in Las Vegas doesn't do that. They have um, definitely digital ordering that they are sending in. I'm sure many bigger restaurant groups employ software like that. But, you know, a smaller a, a smaller provider, they might be using something that Cisco or, you know, one of the other big food service companies has. But, uh, you know, that's that's a challenge. So, and that's also a touch point, right? Yeah. So, you know, eliminating those touch points right now is really critical and being able to have some digital air gap, so to speak, of payment, receiving, and all of that makes a big difference right now. And this is something that, you know, clearly none of us were thinking about before, you know, the last last few weeks about the supply chain, not as necessarily related to... Uh, you know, how information is passed uh, in terms of energy used, carbon footprint, all that. Those are very common things that we think about when we analyze supply chain. So now we're thinking about contaminants within the supply chain and and how can we start to, you know, you use the, I, I love the, you know, the term that you use of, of like air gap. How do you actually take out 
physical human touch points within a supply chain because now that is part of the supply chain security and effectiveness. Well, exactly. And there's a lot of these old school techniques or, you know, physical techniques that now all of a sudden are really, really important. You know, the DOD has been doing this stuff for a very long time. I mean, they they perfected uh, basically offline compute, right, where you would key into a room the moment you closed the door, the computer inside that had access to a network removed access to the network and there was no floppy drive, no nothing. So no way to transmit anything into that machine. You could do what you needed to do when you left the room. It, you know, kind of connected back up again. That's, that's pretty standard uh, operating procedure for, you know, kind of a, a confidential room or, or something like that. We're now starting to deploy techniques like that into the general public of like how your local food store or, you know, grocery store gets resupplied or at least that we, we would like to I don't know if it's actually happening but that that's the weak link in in all of this right now when we think about you know well people obviously you have to you have to get food you have to go, go to the pharmacy um, but how is that being managed in a way that that's um, you know keeping people safe you can stay six feet apart but if everybody in the store is you know the stocks the shelves are being stocked by human hands you can only you can only physically disinfect so much and so often, yeah. right? Well, and moving to headless, you know, something I call headless, right? In the mm-hmm. in the uh, technology industry, that means that it's basically like you don't really see the see the server, you don't really like connect to it per se. You know, sitting in front of it with a monitor, you connect to it remotely. Um, moving to headless grocery stores. Um, pharmacies, things like that, we're rapidly looking at that. Uh, that's why, you know, Uprise is kind of like the, the phones are ringing off the hook, so to speak. There's a ton of people right now that are trying to figure out how do they move fully digital rapidly because yeah. they realize if they don't, their business is going to have to shut down until this all gets squared away or maybe forever. So I would say if I was a small business, I would be looking at how do I get digital for my customers? I would be worrying a whole lot less about where I do it from, but that would be probably secondary. You know, if I had to sit in the store by myself and that was my separation, getting my customers so that they could buy my product and that I had some type of supply chain would be first and foremost, the only thing I'd be concerned about. Yeah. You know, and I think customers... So actually, here's another point, right? So I want to talk about internet capacity a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a great one. That this is super fascinating. Um, really, in the last week, well, this, that this feeds, has surfaced. Yeah, this feeds into supply chain a lot, right? Because yes. Amazon shut down. To so Amazon is is really helping out quite a bit uh, by basically having remote packaging, right, and sending things through the mail to people. Well, the problem with that is they've overwhelmed themselves. They're hiring 100,000 plus people now. Giving a $2 raise to all their employees. Nice. Yeah. And that's basically like, please don't quit money. <laughs> right. So, and please come here. Yeah. 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 Please show I mean, up to work. Target's doing the same thing. Uh, many of the grocery stores, same thing. They realize they're at the front of this and they're just trying to hold the wheels on the bus. So, but with that being said, Amazon had to realize that, look, their capacity and their ability to deliver, they really need to focus. So they switched most of their FBA, which is uh, fulfillment by Amazon, off or really drastically throttled it back uh, for a couple weeks so that they could focus on foodstuffs, uh, basically critical supplies, any type of pharmacy, so like pill pack stuff. Um, And so where I'm going with that is many small businesses that did get digital if they were using FBA as one of their delivery you know, points, that basically means you make your product, if you're a creator, you send your product to Amazon's warehouses and they basically pick it, package it, ship it, handle returns, the whole nine yards for you. Um, you're kind of in a little bit of a unknown world of hurt there, right? Because now your stuff's not going out. So... 
even having a solution like that, you need to have a backup plan um, to be able to operate, you know, intermodally, so to speak. And, and right. Have a couple and and let's modes. face it, who would who would have saw that coming? I mean, this is really it's one of those things that it's not I think having a remote workforce plan, no matter what, like we, we you certainly need to to, you know, work on that. But yeah, anyone who's relying on Amazon FBA, like they just you just wouldn't have you wouldn't see this coming. I mean, this is well, so out of left field in terms uh, of being prepared for anything for your business, you know. So I would say anytime that you are fully committed to only one vendor that supplies everything that you do, like from a supply chain standpoint, solely. Agree if that's the only, yeah, yeah. That's that's a challenge. There's a reason that, you know, Western Digital and Seagate in the hard drive space, for instance, both exist. It's because, you know, while everyone would like to just consolidate them down because, you know, hard drives are kind of a dying business. It's spinning rust, as we like to call it. Um, people still want to be able to have some choice. So there's the duopoly. Right. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about the internet capacity issue, because this is something that we just saw starting to happen in the last week. Yes. And what it could mean for us if, if the trend continues could, could be something pretty significant that, that affects the economy at, at large and, and how, how we're all kind of dealing with things. So, so tell me a little bit about what you saw last week with, uh, with capacity issues. Yeah. And so I would say this is, I mean, it's good and it's bad, right? Everybody we're testing out working from home all at the same time. And so capacities are getting tested, uh, regularly, uh, I was having trouble getting into Microsoft Azure to manage things. Same with Google. Same with Amazon. I was seeing hiccups. Um, Zoom was having problems with uh, basically conferencing and keeping up. All of these things were really because of internet bandwidth issues to the point where people started to ask, you know, people in the tech industry started to ask places like Netflix, Disney, you know, Hulu, whoever, if they could really start to throttle back um, some of their video quality uh, because we needed a breather on bandwidth. So many people were watching Netflix and doing, uh, you know, remote desktop and conferences and all that, that critical infrastructure was starting to fail a little bit. And so to me, that's, that's kind of a yellow flag because I just think we're at, we're at such capacity right now. Uh, and I'm sure that all of the big ISPs, internet service providers, um, CDNs, content delivery networks, um, cloud providers, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Google, the, the whole works rapidly adding network capacity. Um, but sometimes it's just, you're, you're not out ahead of that. Right. And I think right now we're, we're a little fragile, right. Mm -hmm. With that being said, and I'm not saying that doom and gloom, the other piece that, you know, creates a little bit of concern. So, okay, that's great. Let's just go order more gear and make faster stuff. And, and upgrade all these links and stuff. Well, guess where all those chipsets come from? China. And their factories are, you know, just barely coming back online. Some of them may not come back online at that rate. And so we are, uh, we're in an interesting place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think um, it's encouraging, certainly that, I mean, China cases are, are going on down now. Right. Um, so we may not have that supply chain disruption, but even though the beginning of the supply chain may be coming back online and solid, uh, we still of course have, have the rest of the chain that has to be in operation to make sure that, you know, we have chips showing up where they need to. And, and, um, you know, that, that system is all working. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, and the interesting piece with that, right, is it's sort of like the oil industry. When you look at oil capacity, 
And when prices drastically fluctuate, it's usually only because, you know, supply or demand is off by one or two percent. So it's a very um, there's a not very much float there, so to speak. Well, things like network capacity and all of that at at the global level, you know, it doesn't take very much once you start getting close to capacity, you know, to really like tip something over and make it break. Uh, so I think even having a massive slowdown and being able to potentially get some of these networking products, that could be a problem. And so with that being said, we've put a lot of eggs, a lot of tech eggs in one basket being China. I'm interested to see coming out of this. I think there's going to be a lot of places where we start to look. I know even the mask industry, uh, ventilator industry, uh, you know, medical devices, they're starting to look at, hey, how come all this stuff is built in, you know, one or two countries and we can only source them from there? We've seen India shut off supply to uh, some of the the stuff in ibuprofen. Uh, we've seen them stop sending out ventilators, uh, and we're seeing that. That's a little bit more common. And so, with that being said, I think whenever stuff like that starts to happen and you start to see supply problems, in a way. It's a real pain when it happens, but it does make you stronger if you take those things and move forward and make sure that you have a little bit more diversity in your supply chain. Absolutely. And, and to that point, I mean, I, going through something like this, it does really force you to take a look at things in a whole new way. And for that, we're certainly going to come out of this a lot stronger uh, the businesses that emerged from the other side of this are going to have learned a lot of lessons about how to how to do things better, more efficiently, be more creative. I mean, one thing that that I've seen in the last really the last week for me and my conversations with different startup founders, company leaders is they're just they're always voraciously looking for ways to grow their business. But now it's just like times 100 you know, they're just, we're having these conversations of like, okay, how do I get this into market quicker? I can't afford to wait. Um, how do I, you know, create this software in a way that's all that much more efficient because I can't afford to wait? You know, um, how do we think about new needs that customers have in light of this? The marketplace has changed uh, and we don't know when it's going to go back to quote unquote normal. So how do we adapt? And that's one thing that I find uh, quite encouraging is that we are great as human beings of adapting, right? So we're looking around us, we're seeing what's happening, what do people need and, and we'll, we'll figure it out. So that, you know, that's one thing in, in the midst of all, all of this that um, I'm finding kind of that silver lining of having these conversations about, okay, like now what, you know, let's let just figure this out. Well, and, and at the edge, right. And not to be too Darwinian though, right when events major events like this happen this does tend to prune prune the tree a little bit right um this is yes. sort of like the uh, the moth that they uh, they found um i think it was in london or or what have you it had adapted to pollution and it basically uh it it didn't stand out anymore on the tree and it evolved to um to basically having pollution well then they they changed what they were using and basically pollution went away. Now all of a sudden the thing stood out like a sore thumb, right? There's going to be you know to kind of take that uh, that Darwin approach, right? There are going to be businesses that unfortunately um, get pruned out of existence with this. Um, can't tell you who they all might be. You know, there are some that probably are already really feeling this and and probably are thinking maybe uh, we need to wind this down rapidly. Uh, and you know, I, I wish everybody the best, but I think there are going to be, like you said, a lot of, um, rapid dynamic companies that they don't go slower. They move faster and they get to where they need to go. Um, you know, one thing, one thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is what I call sort of tech stasis. Um, you know, and I think, that basically means doing more with less. And if you look at sort of the curve of hardware versus software over the years, it's like 
some hardware advances happen, and then software programmers and developers and engineers rise to the occasion with whatever they write to fully utilize the hardware. And so over the last 30 years, that's sort of been like a a cat and mouse game back and forth. Um, Right now, I would say that we have been in the state of we can just throw hardware at the problem um, really easily. It's been a lot easier to throw hardware at the problem. Um, The network example uh, is a perfect example, right? If that all of a sudden becomes constrained or if even disk, you know, disk capacity, uh, most of the fabs that disks or um, chips are made are in Southeast Asia, right? So as a result of that, if that got disrupted, what happens is rather than you getting an unlimited, you know, phone plan or network plan or storage plan, now all of a sudden there starts to become some scarcity. Well, I look at the Atari tape, right? The Atari game that came on a cassette, that was like something like 16 kilobits or kilobytes of storage that the programmers had to write inside of that demand, right? And so we might get to the point where we can't add more capacity. We can't add more hardware fast enough. So what ends up happening is we end up taking resource and we apply it to developers because they have to get that much more efficient. And if it took them a hundred hours to write something where they could just throw something up and not worry that hardware just kind of keeps scaling and now they have to be constrained, it might take them 10,000 hours or it might take 10 engineers, you know, to get on that, to, to do the same thing that one did all of a sudden. Um, so, you know, the world, uh, the world is changing, right? We don't know. This is very dynamic. So um, I guess it will be interesting to see, but I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of positive things and hope that we can look to, I think. Um, there's also, you know, the negative, sad and bad things um, that, are, that will always be there, right? But, yeah. I mean, one thing about the, you know, whole tech stasis idea, which I think is a really, really fascinating idea and, and totally relevant right now. Uh, while I think it's an interesting challenge to say, hey, let's let's develop more efficiently and um, create more efficiently. But if it's more efficient on the technology side, but less efficient on the human side, you know, is it a wash? So that's kind of one question. But then I also worry about, well, does that um, raise the barrier to new tech companies entering the market, MVPs getting rolled out because of that, because of that need for, for human resources. And, you know, that could kind of have a chilling effect on what we see with innovation and new players entering the market, which is a huge concern for me. Cause I mean, we're one of the things I'm trying to do all the time is just get new entrepreneurs and new people into, you know, what I just call like the, this innovation ecosystem. And, that certainly could pose a challenge with that. Well, I, I would argue with you on that one. You, you and Uprise and team are pretty choosy with the types of clients that we work with, making sure that they have a viable plan to sort of start with. So, Well, that's true. But I guess if you, like in the example you gave, if you could develop something with one or two engineers versus 10, well that's a pretty huge deterrent when someone's looking at creating, creating something to say, Oh wow, my, my startup class, there's no way I can like find angels to fund this. There's no way I can bootstrap this. Like, you know, so that, that's really what I mean about that super early stage of just being a barrier that might be too high to, to get past. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's a good point, but I think that we are in a very ingenious culture and I think that we will figure it out. And I, oh, and I, I fully agree. I really think that um, these changes are good sometimes. I mean, I'm going to choose to be the optimist that I am and say sometimes or almost always change is good. Um, I'm going to choose to look at this as this could be a change is good situation if we choose to look at it that way. I know there are just a ton of businesses that right now are probably not feeling that, but 
you know, I think if you really, if you really, really think about how you do business, think about what you would need to do to be in the future of doing business. If it was exactly like it is today, um, I think you could potentially put yourself in a better place. Now, unfortunately, like time may have gone by too long or, you know, funds might be too tight or, or what have you. But um, if you had that capability, I think that starts to make your business um, a lot more resilient. And we just haven't been tested, you know, in, in this way. And I think this is important for us to really think about as business leaders and that, we have to test our resiliency every so often. It's not enough to just back up your data. It's not enough to just have a remote, you know, work policy. Uh, you have to actually test these things, and you have to test them at scale, and you have to actually use them. You know, it's it's sort of like a fire extinguisher. If your fire extinguisher in your kitchen is from 1980, um, which was you know a great year. Um, and it hasn't been used and, and you haven't maintained it and, and all that. And then you go to use it and it doesn't work. It's not really a fire extinguisher. It's a big red vessel. <laughs> so anyhow, was there anything else you wanted to, to kind of cover on this? No, I think I think that's it. I'd love to uh, talk again sometime about um, more about remote work stuff and, you know, how we're putting the people and process elements onto the tech, because I think that's you know you can have all of the tech that that you talked about. If people don't kind of know how to use it, and you don't have a good process around that, then that's kind of the next challenge to solve. So maybe that's something we can dive into um, another time. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And I know we went a little long on this, but I think there are a lot of great topics and uh, I'm looking forward to unpacking and digging into some of these in a lot more detail with you. That's for sure. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by Uprise Partners. Uprise launches startups and evolves established companies. Check it out at www.uprisepartners.com. Please like, subscribe, and share, and we'd love to hear from you. Give us a shout if you have a great idea that you want us to include. Just email us at hello at datamyths.com. Catch you next time.